0: All right, we're going to look at a particular topic related to apologetics that is uh, tremendously important, uh, and it is the topic of a biblical worldview. Now, um, I say a biblical worldview, the question rises, what is a worldview? Well, that's the, 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 the two sheets that are, the two lines, excuse me, that are there under that question. A worldview would make up the beliefs values, and attitudes on which people act. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit in a moment. But the simple definition of a worldview is the beliefs, values, and attitudes on which people act. Now, when we talk about a worldview, uh, most people, or let me most maybe a little pejorative, many people don't realize that they have a worldview. In fact, the reality is everybody has a worldview. Simply, it's the it's the basis on which we act, based on what we think about certain things in life. So, whether you're a pagan or whether you're a Christian, whether you're a communist or whether you're a uh, you know a uh, a capitalist, wherever you fall in any spectrum of kind of background or framework in life, you have a worldview. Whether you know you have a worldview or not, you still have a worldview. Because everybody makes value decisions based on something. A worldview, while it's important that we understand it, and we're going to do some of that tonight, while it's important that we understand it and that we frame it, what we need to know is everybody has one. So when you walked in tonight, you walked in with a worldview. Whether you know it or not, decisions that you make, Things that you value in life, things that you don't value, things that you pick up on or things that you discard, all of that is shaped by the worldview that you walked in with. A worldview is is basically those things that you have, sometimes without even thinking about it. For example, most of you in this room believe that God exists, right? Can I make that assumption pretty safe? You're at a church, right? Right? As best I can tell, most of you here are church members, I think most, if not all. But, you know, when you become a church member, you have to make a confession of faith and acknowledge that Jesus is your Lord and Savior and be baptized. And, you know, that kind of predicates the idea that you believe there's a God who exists and that he created the world. Well, that's going to lead us to a certain set of values, a certain set of uh, thought processes about life if that's not a part of our worldview if we think something differently then that's going to affect those things that we value or those decisions that we make so wherever we are whether we're at a church or whether we're in a secular institution or whether we're in the world whatever it is everybody walks in with a worldview now what i want to do tonight is unpack what it is uh, uh, about a christian worldview or a biblical worldview that sets us apart when considered Any worldview, no matter what it is, another religion, I was talking with someone today about Islam, uh, an Islamic worldview, each worldview has to answer certain questions uh, about reality. And so we're going to look at what those questions are and what our answer is within a biblical framework. Uh, If you'll look, there's a a little kind of uh, paradigm there, Um, kind of a, a... a design there. The first blank is creation. The first blank is creation. We we'll give you some scripture verses that go along with that too. The first blank is creation. And, and the reason we go to creation is because it explains the questions of origin and design. Now, whether you uh, believe in evolution, whether you believe in Christianity, whether you believe in Islam, whether you're a communist, doesn't matter what your particular brand of thinking is, Every worldview has to answer the question of origin. Where did we come from? How did we get here? Uh, wh- why do things appear designed? Why do things appear as they are? Evolutionary naturalists have to answer this question. Of course, their suggestion is, or their theory is, that we rose from you know billions of years of, of types of uh Uh, evolutionary processes and the reason we look like we do today is because in our past millennia ago we were like little uh, amoeba and then we turned into frogs and then we turned into monkeys and then we look like we do today and that's their kind of process but they have to answer the question of origin where we came from in a biblical worldview the question of origin is answered by creation we go to the Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, and so that's basically the text for creation. Genesis chapter 1, and you could also look at John chapter 1 if you wanted to draw some parallels. Uh, in a biblical worldview, we believe that we came from creation. Now, we're going to walk through these, these particular questions in our framework, and then we're going to look at why it is that a biblical worldview is so important, and why it is that a biblical worldview helps us make sense of the light of life around us. So creation explains the questions of origin and design. We believe we came from God. And according to a biblical perspective, God is not a part of creation. Many worldviews have their ultimate reality or their God that is a part of creation. In other words, there's good and there's evil, and they kind of function together. That's not the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview begins with God. He is not a part of creation. He is self-existent, completely on his own. He doesn't need us. He doesn't require anything of us in terms of for his existence to be real. He's outside of creation. He spoke creation into existence. That's where things came from. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you an example of that in a few minutes when we're talking about the issue of coherence. So creation answers the questions of origin and design. Uh, the second little blank to the right of creation on your page is fall. Fall. It's sin. Genesis chapter 3. Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, if you want to look at Paul's definition of sin and what that means for us and where that leaves us, Genesis 3 would be Adam and Eve's choice to partake of the fruit God told them not to eat of. But the issue of fall explains the questions of morality, sin, and evil. Here's something that every worldview has to answer. They have to answer, why is there evil in the world? Now, In a few weeks, we're going to unpack that question specifically, why is there evil and suffering in the world? So I'm not going to jump way ahead on that. But the fall is the Christian answer for why we look out at the world and see evil and explain evil. Everything that is wicked and prevailing ungodliness and unrighteousness or everything that is suffering, all, all, in every scenario, it comes back to the fall. The world was perfect when God created it. But it is not perfect now, and it's not perfect because we sinned. And every worldview has to answer that. Naturalism, uh, evolutionary naturalism, tries to answer that question that morality and good and evil are either figments of our imagination or their developments within the history of sociological interaction. But basically, that would leave us with this, with evolutionary naturalism and the issue of morality, is that uh, we choose to do what is good because it makes us look good or it makes us feel better about ourselves. That's the level of morality that's left with evolutionary naturalism. Problem is, it just doesn't fit reality, and we'll show you what, what I mean by that in a few moments. So you have creation and fall. The fall answers the questions of morality, sin, and evil. Uh, The third uh, little box there is redemption. uh, Scripture verses that you could go to for this would be John 3.16. And again, you could look at Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 because uh, Paul talks about not only sin, but also how we can be redeemed. Uh, Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death. Uh, or excuse me for all of sin, but come sh- and come short of the glory of God. And then Paul talks about Jesus being the justifier in that latter part of Romans chapter three. That there is a goal for us to be redeemed from our sinfulness. Every worldview has this as well. They have their idea of what salvation looks like. Mm-hmm. Communism, by the way, is a distinct worldview. In communism's worldview, uh, then eventually what takes place is that. Uh, the government determines what is right for everyone for everyone around, and they make everything work together so that redemption looks like the government deciding who gets paid what and how that functions. And that, that's, an, that's an explanation of redemption in their particular concept. Or if you get into Islam, for example, the Islamic worldview regarding the issue of redemption is that you abide by the five particular pillars of Islam So you pray daily and you make a pilgrimage to Mecca at least one time in your life and you give alms to the poor and do several other things that that make sure that you're lined up and right with God and that's what redemption looks like. Or if you go into Hinduism, or Buddhism rather, Buddhism leads you to nirvana, you basically eventually reduce yourself to nothingness. That sounds fun, doesn't it? In Hinduism, you reincarnate. You guys know what reincarnation is, right? Right? You get to become cows if you do better in life. I, I say that a little jestfully, but that's true. Hindu, in Hindu religion, a cow is actually a higher stage of life than a human. Did you know that? And see, whether you live well or not, it depends on, you know, determines what you reincarnate as. And that's why they don't eat cows in, in India, and they won't kill cows. The expression, holy cow, that came from India. I think I'm kidding. That's exactly where it came from, from reincarnation. Redemption is how you live your life. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says something completely different. The Bible says that we can't redeem ourselves, that we can't do good enough or be good enough in order for God to accept us. The Bible says that redemption looks like Jesus paying the price we couldn't pay, offering us salvation and forgiveness that we couldn't earn. And that's the biblical explanation for what redemption looks like. Uh, The fourth little box there is restoration, restoration. Uh, Romans 8 would be a great chapter for you to look at. Paul says in that chapter, creation itself is groaning and longing for redemption. Uh, Basically what that means is there's coming a day when God is going to restore earth to the way that he originally designed it. In other words, there's a purpose and a plan to this whole mess of a world that we see around us. God's going to do something different than what we currently see and what we currently witness. We also see that in the book of Revelation. Restoration answers the questions or explains the questions of purpose and justice. Purpose and justice. Now here's where all this comes comes to play. A worldview must be coherent. It's down at the bottom. A worldview must be coherent and a worldview must be relevant. And let's unpack some of those things and what that means. If you're going to have a worldview that is consistent, then it has to be coherent. What that means is internally it has to agree, it has to work together. In the biblical worldview, the biblical worldview works together, it is coherent. In other words, uh, God is our creator and he demands righteousness. We sinned, we broke his law, and and we rejected his right to rule over us. So he provided a redeemer through the person of Jesus Christ. But the end goal is not what we experience here. The end goal is what God's going to do one day. He's going to restore everything back to the way it was originally designed. That is a coherent worldview. Uh, What does it look like when you have a worldview that's not coherent? Well... It looks like, uh, for example, the worldview of evolutionary naturalism. Evolutionary naturalism uh, is, is what many in our contemporary society hold. There are those who would say that we arose by evolution. Why is that worldview not coherent? Uh, well, because inside, internally it doesn't work. In, in other words, if you don't have a base for morality, which evolutionary naturalism does not have, then you can't argue that we should live a certain way. Uh, Richard Dawkins saying that we should be nice people is kind of funny. He actually wrote a book called The Selfish Gene. He talked about the idea that we as humans are internally selfish. Well, here, here's where I would pause and stop. Where does that fit within evolutionary naturalism? In other words, selfishness doesn't... There, there's not even a category for describing selfishness if we arose purely from evolutionary means and instinct. Is a lion selfish? Selfish? Because it eats another lion? No, it's instinct. They're just doing what they're doing to survive. So why is it that we use, that evolutionary naturalism uses different categories to describe uh, what they would say is morality that we should live by? And, And here's the other fascinating factor regarding coherence. I'm glad that most evolutionary naturalists are not consistent. See, a consistent evolutionary naturalist one that's coherent within his own worldview would basically say the strongest, the most powerful and the most wise of us as humans are the ones that need to survive. Everybody that's not like us, everybody that's not like us as the wise and the strong and the handsome or whatever else, they can die for all that matter, for all that matters. Also coherence would mean that there's no really real reason to say it's wrong to kill somebody it's wrong to murder it, they, that's hey, that is in it's incoherent to say that murder is wrong inside a worldview that is based on instinct and pure morality but we ought to be grateful that evolutionary naturalists don't live coherently within their own worldview some will make the mistake and make our arguments and observations that show the incoherence of their worldview most do not But if you wonder where this actually plays out in contemporary society, look around you and think about issues like abortion. Say, how in the world could a country that claims to be predominantly Christian abide by a system whereby babies in the womb are allowed to be killed? How how does that happen? What happens because worldviews make the case like evolutionary naturalism did in different perspectives secularism made the case that that infant is not an infant it is a fetus or it is a mass of cells and if you think about an evolutionary process who cares whether it's whether you know what it, what it is and so then that was the argument that was made in the 1970s to actually make the case for abortion and what we know now based on research scientific research, you doctors and nurses in the room, we know that from the very beginning of conception, there's no such thing as a mass of cells residing in the womb of a woman. It is actually a very tiny little person uh, that within weeks has a heartbeat and has blood flow and looks like a human and and in many ways is already a human in the way it interacts inside the woman's body. But if you have a biblical worldview that starts with life and starts with God, then that's why we want to protect that life. If you don't have a biblical worldview and you leave God out of the equation, like much many do in evolutionary naturalism or other secular worldviews, then why is it why would you value life? You wouldn't. <clears throat> so the issue with uh, coherence is that the worldview has to fit together. The issue with relevance is the worldview has to make sense with life. I mean, when you look around you, things need to square with the worldview that you hold. In other words, if the worldview that you hold is inconsistent with what you see, then you need to leave that worldview behind. Let me give you an example. Uh, postmodernism. Postmodernism is a worldview that basically says there are no absolute truths. Well, that's a self-defeating worldview because that's a claim of absolute, there's an absolute claim. Um, But why is postmodernism inconsistent or non-relevant to the way we live life? Well, I've met some people that claim to be postmodern. And they'll tell you that there's no such thing as ultimate truth or that there's no such thing as a God that we answer to. You believe what you want to believe and I believe what I want to believe. We'll kind of all get there in the end and all that kind of stuff. But you tell them that their, uh, their bank has become postmodern. And they have decided to move the decimal points in their bank account arbitrarily. Okay, you tracking with me? Now, if you move them one way, they're very happy with that. But if you can move them one way, you can move them the other way just as easily. So there's no such thing as a postmodern when it comes to math. There's also no such thing as a postmodern when it comes to construction. Ravi Zacharias made, a, made an observation that there was a, 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 um, a, a building in Canada that somebody told him was a postmodern building. And that it had, uh, it had steps that led to nowhere, and, and it had you know different hallways that didn't go anywhere. And he asked a very insightful question. He said, is the foundation postmodern? In other words... There is not a, a group, or excuse me, there's not a government entity that would allow a building to be built on a foundation that is not square and that is not consistent and that is not well founded. Otherwise, they're going to have a lawsuit on their hands, right? Because the building's not going to last. It's not going to stand. In other words, postmodernism is inconsistent with reality. It doesn't fit. So you, you is in some ways have to reject that outright, because there's no way it makes sense with with what we see. Evolutionary naturalism is another example. The issue of sin or the issue of morality. Goodness. Evolutionists can't cannot, they can't even make sense of love. Now, you may be here, or others may come to church, and they may be skeptical of God, and they may be skeptical of God being the creator. And they may be skeptical of Jesus dying on the cross. Sure. But I have yet to meet a person. I have yet to meet a person that is truly a skeptic concerning love. You know how I know that? Because I've talked with them. I've interacted with people who are non-believers. They believe in love. They believe they had a moment or an experience of love with another person. They believe their mama loves them or they believe their daddy loves them or they believe their girlfriend loves them or their husband or their wife loves them. And yet, in evolutionary naturalism, love is just a set of chemical processes. It's not an emotional reality. It's not something that's there or that's present. In other words, it's inconsistent or it re- it, it's not relevant to real life. So when we're talking about things that are relevant... How does Christianity fit the bill? Is Christianity coherent and is Christianity relevant? Let me answer that in the affirmative on both counts. Christianity is internally and externally coherent. In other words, it fits. It's not unreasonable. It's not crazy. It's not out of this world ridiculous. Uh, You think about the issue of miracles. I mean, how many people could walk on water, right? Right? I mean, I've never walked on water. Have you ever walked on water? But would it be surprising or is it, is it ridiculous to believe that the God who created everything that we see could actually walk on water? I mean, if he could speak it out of nothing, that's not inconsistent at all. That's actually pretty amazing. Uh, and, and pretty commonplace and ordinary that God could walk on water because he created the way that it works. He created the framework. Uh, it, Christianity is also consistent and coherent with what we know about the world as it exists. Let me give you a glaring example. I may have mentioned this before, but if I, if I have, forgive me. And if I haven't, uh, then you'll be encouraged by this. Physicists today, uh, they say that the world came about, the universe came about through a big bang. You've heard that term, the Big Bang theory of the existence of the universe. Some physicists will put that Big Bang at millions of years ago. Some will put it at billions of years ago. I'm not sure. I don't worry about that. But the physicists that have explored what that Big Bang might have looked like have said something like this. They said the Big Bang would have taken place millions of years ago and it would have been like an explosion, an explosion that would have been massive, and been so massive that there's, a, there's a, a, a pause. So there's an explosion, there's a pause. And what they said, what they speculated, is that if there was an explosion that started everything that we see in the universe, then at that pause there would have been a giant burst of light, and then the universe would have continued to expand. That's a fascinating theory. I mean, still, I don't know how physicists can speculate what that would have looked like. I mean, I don't know if they can replay those types of events back in some kind of closed uh, system of, uh, of exploration or trial. But here's what amazes me. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning God uh, created the heavens and the earth, and he said, Let there be light. In other words, even if that theory is right, if that's the way God chose to bring about the initial expansion of the universe through an explosion, that speculation is coherent with the Christian testimony of the world. I'll give you another example. What's one of the most fascinating stories in the Bible? I mean, there are tons of them. Uh, Jonah and the whale is pretty fascinating. I mean, you know, think about a guy being swallowed by a whale that's kind of amazing, I'm just going to be honest with you, I believe it, I believe it took place, but you know, if you're, if you're going to look at some qu- stories that you question, that's that's one of the ones that you, you read, and you're like, man, that, that's pretty wild, let me give you another one that I think is pretty wild, how about Noah's Ark, and we sing those songs from from the time we're children, uh, Noah and and his Ark, and, and all the animals that God sent, he sent them two by two, and brought him in the ark. And I believe Noah's ark story. I actually believe it took place. I believe God flooded the earth. God put Noah on a, on a, on a boat that he built. It took him 120 years to build. I actually think that. Uh, but I'm going to be quite honest with you. There are a lot of people in our world that think that's fanciful. I think that it's absolutely ridiculous. There's no way in the world that God sent all the animals on an ark. Did you know that the flood story is actually likely the most universal uh, story in the whole wide world? There are flood accounts in Babylonia, in Acadia, that's the Middle East. There are flood accounts in China. There are flood accounts in India. There are flood accounts in Inc. In, uh, among the Mayan culture. And there are flood accounts among the Perus. That's just a handful. There are actually dozens more flood accounts in ancient cultures. In other words, all of these ancient cultures had a story of somehow where a person or a group of people was rescued from a giant universal flood. Now, now here's, where, here's where the Christian worldview and the Christian explanation from things is coherent. If there was no flood, there was no flood, we should never see any evidence from it. It should be just a story to remind us that God rescues his people. But if there was a flood, then what do we know from that? If there was a flood, then everybody on planet Earth came from Noah, his wife, and Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Am I right there? I mean, are you all tracking with me logically? Well, if that's the case, then their children told stories. And they told stories, and they told stories. I mean, the the flood story would be one I would pass along. I mean, you know, granddaddy Noah took 120 years to build a boat. Every animal or two-by-two two animals came on the boat. And can you imagine what it would have been like to live on that boat with all those animals? I mean, be on, I'm going to be honest with you. I have a dog. I love my dog. She's getting older, which means she either has to go out more often in the middle of the night or she doesn't ask to go out. She just goes, which means I have to clean that up. And I'm not a morning person, so you can only imagine what that you know, vision is, having to clean those things up. Some of you understand, some of you love your pets and would never think about doing anything awful, like giving your pets away. I'm not some of you. I, I'm one of those people, I love my pet, I love my dog, but there are moments when I would I would share my animal with you, anybody who would take it. And I cannot imagine being the person that God said, get on a boat with all these animals for more than a year. Feed them, take care of them, clean them up. It's a pretty big story. What's amazing is that all over the world, there are stories of the flood account or types of the flood account. Now, that doesn't make it true, but it's coherent. The biblical testimony of how things take place is coherent with what we see in the world. It's consistent. How about relevant? How about relevant? I mean, we look around us and we see that the world looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket. I mean, it's just, they're just crazy all over the place. There's wickedness all over the place. There's unrighteousness all over the place. Why can we remain hopeful? Because when I look at the world, I see exactly what God says about the world in the Bible. Look at Romans chapter 1. The sin that they were dealing with, that Paul was writing to in the Roman church, or the Romans, we see all that today, see every bit of it. The solution? For the sin among the, Roman, uh, among the Roman Empire is the same solution that the Bible offered then and the same solution the Bible offers now. We need redemption. We need salvation. We need forgiveness. We need Jesus. It, the Bible in the biblical worldview is coherent among, in, in and among itself. It means it's, co- it's consistent as a worldview, and it is also intensely relevant. It offers us hope. I get frustrated with what i see around me i'm sure you do as well i want to tell you there's some good news the bible's right then we're not on the losing side the bible's right then we've got something to look forward to in fact that's one of the only things that gets me through the week and it's some of the one of the only things that may get you through the week we have folks in our church that that have passed away recently many in our church In fact, uh, you've got a lot of people to pray for, that that we need to pray for them as they've lost loved ones. You know what gives me hope and comfort and what gives them hope and comfort as we gather together for a funeral or memorial service? Is that this earth is not their final resting place. There's something more. There's something better. There's something to long for that's greater than that. That's the relevance of a Christian worldview. We're told that this isn't all there is. If this was all there is, man, we better shut. We better. We better close up shop. This is miserable. What we're seeing—it's not though. That's the point. Is it fits and it makes sense. Uh, you can be confident. You can be confident uh, that a biblical worldview is the most consistent worldview that there is. Tons of other worldviews. Tons of other explanations. Worldviews have to be coherent. And have to be relevant. And the biblical worldview is both coherent and relevant. If you're interested in reading some more material on that, let me offer a book to you that is one of my favorites. Um, it, it's not light reading, but it is encouraging reading. It's a book called Total Truth by Nancy Piercy, P-E-A-R-C-E-Y. You can get that on Amazon uh, in quite a few different formats, and she deals with a Christian worldview uh, rather specifically and, and talks about it in terms of contemporary society. Fascinating book recommend that to any of you that would like to uh, like to read